with your host, Stephanie Arnold. Welcome to our very first podcast, Dr. Philip Johnson and Dr. Armin Markosian. Phil, would you mind letting us know a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Stephanie. It's great to be here. I'm a managing director with Econ One. I joined uh, about 15 years ago. My group, we work largely on antitrust, but also other matters with complex data and analytical um, issues. And Armin, what about you? Well, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, good to be here with you today. Uh, I am a senior economist at Econ One, uh, working uh, in Phil's practice group. I've been working with Phil on antitrust, employment, and other class certification and damages issues for uh, many years now, over eight years. Great. Well, it's a pleasure to have both of you here. And before we get into sort of the nuts and bolts of this podcast, I'd like to start with something fun. So I'm going to ask you both a rapid fire question. And the question of today is, have you ever run into a coworker randomly outside of work? Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> All right, Phil, you go first, then Armin. Well, not a very exciting story, but uh, I was in Walnut Creek nearby and out walking around, and there was uh, Alex Berry, an analyst in my group. And I said, hi, Alex. And he said, hi, Phil. How you doing? And, uh, and then we went our ways. It was a really nice, uh, nice to run in, in, into him there. Very exciting story. <laughs> what about you, Armin? <laughs> oh, I ran into Eric Forrester, who's an economist here in L.A., at Disneyland <laughs> in a line for uh, the Dumbo ride two favorite. weeks ago. That's so that, w- that was pretty funny. I had never run into anyone in Disneyland. And Eric told me that all that all those years, he had never run into anyone he knew at Disneyland. And in that line for the Dumbo ride, he ran into two people he knew. That's crazy. So that, w- that was pretty funny. He had his three kids with him, and uh, I had my little one. You know, I also ran into somebody once. I ran into an analyst at Joanne Fabric and Crafts, and I heard his voice from around on a different aisle, and I came around the corner and was said to him, what in the world are you doing here? It was just such a strange place to see somebody outside of work. I've also seen people driving down the freeway in Los Angeles, which is, if you are familiar with Los Angeles, it's so big that seeing somebody is absolutely insane. Anyway, thank you guys for sharing. So let's jump right into it. What would you like to talk about today? Well, we're going to tell you about some of the work we do in our our group and also uh, some of our thoughts on the current state of of the industry with regard to antitrust and class certification issues. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience in antitrust class certification? I worked on my first uh, antitrust class cert case back in, it was about 2000, 2001. And uh, later on, we started working on, I started working on more cases with the uh, with the TFT LCD case and the high-tech employees case, CRT, um, now working on lithium-ion batteries, and a number of other cases as well. Uh, we've really seen how the industry has been changing and standards have gotten much more rigorous over that time for class certification. And I've been working on those uh, cases with Phil for, for many years now. The first uh, big case that Phil and I had worked together was the TFT-LCD uh, antitrust case back in 2008. Um, 
that case went all the way to trial, which is uh, not a common um, occasion for this uh, kind of a case. But it was it was interesting, and it was a um, it was a very great experience. Great, Phil. Have you ever worked with other experts in this manner? Yeah, that's something we do all the time, Stephanie. Uh, we one of the things we specialize in is working with outside academic experts on on big antitrust cases. TFTLCD was the first one I worked with an outside expert. In that case, we worked with two experts, uh, Ken Flam of University of Texas Austin and Ed Limer of UCLA. It's really a great experience to work with academics because they bring a lot of uh, cutting edge views to uh, to research and very high standard for the, the analysis. And, and we really enjoy that and have that standard in our analysis as well. Great. Thank you for sharing, Phil. Armin, my next question is for you. What do you enjoy most about working on antitrust class certification cases? What do I enjoy the most? Uh, I, enjoy, I enjoy the whole experience. It's always very exciting. Um, every case comes with its own set of challenges and, and issues. Um, that every time we we are learning a new industry, um, there's new problems and issues to address, both as a matter of economics, um, analytics, and uh, data. Um, so I, I enjoy the whole experience, and and I enjoy the fact that the stakes are high, and uh, uh, and it, it it's it's a very uh, very exciting process. It sounds like very challenging work, Phil. Have you? noticed any changes over the years or how has the industry evolved? Well, back when I first worked on an antitrust classification case, the analysis needed was was very straightforward, basically, you know, looking at the issues and saying how that would raise prices. And, and it was pretty short and, and to the point. Over time, the demands by the courts for detailed careful analysis uh, to really show not just conceptually that things can be done, but there actually is the data and there are techniques that will uh, will work in this case and justify this as a classification. In this environment, reports are, are much longer, more extensive. The analysis is really like a pre-damages study, a much bigger challenge than it used to be, and it's, it's exciting to be there and to have seen those changes. Well, let's talk about the changes for a, a second. Armin, can you comment about what happened? Sure. Uh, I think that uh, the case that really turned the page on class certification requirements, as far as the expert work is concerned, was hydrogen peroxide back in 2008. The ruling in that case was to require that commonality issues be addressed fully at the class certification phase, even if those issues overlap with with merits, something that wasn't required before. Now, this made um, the work of economic experts more challenging, but at the same time, more interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and more recently, the Supreme Court's decision with Comcast has has raised the bar for common impact even further. It's confirmed the requirement of rigorous analysis of common impact and also required to, to show that damages can be estimated for plaintiff's actual theory of liability. It's not sufficient anymore just to discuss the methods, but we have to present actual damages analysis. What kind of challenges does this pose for the common impact analysis that you guys are talking about? 
Well, there are, there are a number of challenges. Um, in a nutshell, now experts are required to present a much more rigorous analysis of uh, class certification issues, in particular, showing that all or almost all members of the class suffered some harm. In addition to that, they are required to present almost a final model of damages at the class certification phase. Now, this requires that uh, pretty much all of the data be collected uh, from the outset and um, documentary evidence be analyzed and present almost uh, what may look like a merits and damages report at the class certification phase. So you, you need to do a lot of work uh, in, in the beginning. Can you give us some examples of that? Like, How did you deal with those challenges when they came up in the, in the cases? It's like real time. Sure. Um, so I can go back to our early days uh, where Phil and I were working on the TFT-LCD case. And it was a, it was a very interesting case uh, which came right after the hydrogen peroxide ruling. The case involved a number of uh, manufacturers that allegedly conspired to fix prices of the TFT-LCD screens. And there were there are, uh, 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 Dozens of, or dozens or even hundreds of uh, sizes and resolutions that TFT LCD screens have. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of class members that, for which we had to show impact. And so, what 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 we did is we, we first started with with understanding of what economic forces would um, bring the prices across the products and. Uh, prices that were paid by class members uh, together. We analyzed large uh, volume of documentary evidence and the meeting notes that the conspiracy members uh, took um, to uh, facilitate their, the, the alleged collusion. Um, those, those meeting notes were instrumental in understanding how cartel operated. We also looked at, the, at, at how um, cartel uh, created um, what's called pricing structure, where various products um, relate to each other based on economic forces of, of substitution. And uh, Armin, could you give us some examples, real time, how you dealt with some of those challenges? Yeah, sure. Um, so the TFT LCD case that Phil and I had worked on is a good example. Uh, in that case, we were dealing with a number of manufacturers that allegedly conspired to fix prices of TFT LCD screens and products that contain those screens. And uh, we were dealing with a vast number of uh, products, um, dozens of uh, or even hundreds of sizes and resolutions. And uh, the case was brought by hundreds of thousands of class members. And so the, the, the challenge there was to show that all the prices that were paid by these numerous consumers were impacted by the conspiracy. And so what, uh, what we did is we uh, started by understanding uh, the economic forces that would link the prices that various class members paid uh, together. We analyzed large amounts of data sets and uh, we analyzed large amounts of uh, conspiracy notes uh, that were available to us, which were instrumental to understanding how conspiracy uh, operated. 
and um, we analyzed the, the, the industry of the TFD LCD products and how uh, Cartel uh, was able to, to maintain uh, and elevate the prices to all or almost all uh, consumers. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was challenging and exciting work. That does sound exciting. Phil, do you have any other examples? Yeah, another really uh, interesting case we worked on was the high-tech employees case. Uh, that case was complicated because it involved more than 50,000 employees and many of them with quite different uh, job descriptions and, and salaries. Uh, in that case, there was a, a no-poaching agreement between a number of high-tech firms in, the, in Silicon Valley. And it, although the agreement focused on engineers or appeared to focus on engineers, other technology workers, uh, it had the it had the potential to have impacted the whole firm, and that was what was alleged. So we examined the implications of the firm's employment policies about uh, pay equity. Uh, we we looked at how those policies seemed to explicitly tie together uh, salaries of of quite disparate employees. So we had to start with a, a careful consideration of how those policies and and how those salaries are set and look at the, the role of economic and market forces that also link together salaries of employees at these different companies. If those forces existed with reliable data, we expected to be able to find signs of, of it in the data, and, and we did, in fact, do that. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that analysis and the concept of salary structure in high-tech. Can you shed some light on that for us? Well, in high-tech, we had a dynamic model checking for links between compensation of employees to the compensation of all other employees, how these effects of one employee's compensation could ripple across the firm. And we did show that the, the changes in compensation were tied to firm-wide compensation moves so that there would Ooh, be... firm-wide. Right, firm-wide, where there might be an increase to, uh, say, 10% to every employee in the firm due to a general response to competition for workers from, from other firms. Hmm. Were you successful? What did we call it a sharing effect? We did. We did. Um, yeah, so we were successful in finding that, and... and uh, we found uh, firm-wide effects, like in a in a good sales year or a weak economy, and that these anti-competitive agreements had a have a, had an effect while they were in place on salary levels. What other types of analysis did you do? You know, economical analysis for this case. Well, well, in addition to the to the sharing analysis to look at the the impact across the firm. We also had to estimate the damages, the undercompensation that employees suffered due to these agreements. Okay. Uh, was the case successful? Uh, yes, it was successful. It didn't go to trial. It, it settled. The plaintiffs got, I think it was, well, well over $400 million for Ooh. for the employees. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of money. Okay. Um, I want to shift quickly here and touch on damages. What about damages modeling in these types of cases? Could you talk to us a little bit about that and kind of getting it to the class certification stage? Sure. I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. The The, the recent court decisions introduced more attention to damages analysis at the class certification phase. And now economists uh, oftentimes present a full 
uh, nearly final damages model at the in the class certification report. And in order to do that, you need a lot of data um, at the class certification phase. Uh, the model that experts are presenting need to be well thought out. Uh, there needs to be particular attention on the rigor of econometric methods. Right, and and that attention to those the importance of those methods results in a, in a real active debate between opposing experts about the validity of the damages model early on in the case. It seems like every damages model gets challenged by defendants through through tearing apart the uh, the modeling, disaggregating the analysis. So it seems like you guys expect that now. Pretty much every time we expect uh, to see those kinds of critiques and they have to be ready with, with responses about why our model is the right one. Do you take that into consideration while you're building the model? Well, we're certainly aware in the background that somebody's going to be taking a hard look at what we've done, but we always try to build the right model, the best model um, to get at the right answers. It sounds like getting the right answers can be quite a challenge. Armin, what's your take on what Phil just said? Well, you know, we we pay a particular attention to the damages model. That's that's certainly the case, and uh, we always have the task in mind that the the damages model that we present must be a reasonable, reliable estimate of of the damages to the class, and that's how we approach our. Um, modeling of the damages at the class certification phase and and subsequently at the merit stage. Okay. So we've been talking mostly about cases that you two specifically have worked on the plaintiff side. Is there any information or something that you could shed light on for plaintiff lawyers in these types of cases when they are considering the starting phases of a class certification to make it successful? Yeah. Well, the you know the one critical aspect of uh, our work is getting good, reliable data to uh, conduct our analysis. So that's that's crucial, and uh, we often um, get involved in the data discovery process early on uh, with uh, the team of attorneys, and that has been very helpful and useful for the case to develop um, successfully. Uh, I would say that it is always beneficial to involve the experts team early on in the process, determine what data are necessary, um, and uh, especially in the antitrust cases where the data production can uh, take, take a long time and a vast amount of data will be produced. And also, and also understanding the data, understanding the, the company records aren't always clear. We often need to go back to the entities that produce the data to ask questions, clarify, make sure we understand the data before we start, start building our analysis. We've been talking mostly about your guys' experience on the plaintiff side. So I'm going to ask this question, and I want you to direct, direct your answers to plaintiff lawyers. What do they need to consider at the starting phases of a class certification to make that case successful? Armin, can you shed some light? Sure. Well, in antitrust cases, the data quality is, is really critical, and it is important to pay particular attention to the data production process early on to ensure that we get good, reliable, 
data that we understand and can work with to build our analysis. So I would recommend to involve the experts team early on in the process in the data discovery to help uh, get the necessary data to uh, help uh, ask the right questions to the produ producing parties to understand the data. Um, that would be really critical. Um, and Phil, what about you? What about plaintiffs, attorneys? What would you say to them? Well, on top of what Armin said, and, and what Armin said is really critical because our work is going to be built on data and, and going to, that's going to be the linchpin of the analysis. But something else really important, whether it's a plaintiff or a defense um, team we're working with, and that's good communication um, amongst the team, both between us and the expert and the expert and the lawyers and the lawyers and us. Everyone needs to be on the same page about the assignment and about the nature of the work. The expert should really be, be clear about the theory of the case and, and, and what analysis is going to be done. Because that's going to that's going to drive those data requests and making sure we have the right data to address those those questions. Once the team sees the data needs, um, we need to have the early discussions of the types of analysis that'll be feasible and wanted. Um, and it's important to address cost concerns early on. That's an important issue in in every case we work on. I have to discuss that with the. The, the lawyer team and what constraints we might have when working with the expert in terms of how much uh, resources we can bring to bear. Uh, now, do you do that during the discovery phase or when you are first brought onto a case? All along, from when we're brought onto the case, discovery. At the beginning of the case, you don't really have a lot of information about what the data is going to look like and what all is going to be required. So you can have some idea based on past experience about what costs are going to be. But as you get more information and as the analysis develops, that's going to be updated and you'll be able to put together more precise uh, estimates. And have got to keep communicating that all along the way so that people aren't surprised when, uh, when things take a turn and some analysis shifts. Right. Shifts suddenly. Okay, Armin. What is one question that you would like all plaintiffs, attorneys, to ask you when starting a case like this? Well, you know, I, I, I don't know if I can pick one, one question, but I, I would just refer back to what Phil said about good communication. I think the questions that need to be asked are the, the type of questions that we need to, we need to, um, have a common understanding of the analysis that's being done and why the the analyses are important and have a really ongoing open communication back and forth. So I can't really pick one one question that um, would make the case successful. I think it's more of an ongoing um, open, efficient communication between the lawyers and uh, the expert team. Okay, great. Now, Phil, I'm going to pose the same question to you, and but I'm going to rephrase it a little bit differently. Armin was talking about good communication between an expert and the attorneys that they're working with. What are some of the some things that you tools that you find most helpful in establishing a good working communicative relationship? 
Well, one thing that's important up front is to ask the client about what their needs are and for communication. What will work for them? Do they want regular planned updates on a a weekly basis about what what we're doing? Do they want to have regular uh, check-in phone calls? What's what's the process going to work for them? And and so I wouldn't look for them to ask that question, but I'd be wanting to proactively find out what their needs are and how they like to work. Before we wrap up here, I just want to say thank you guys for taking the time to do this with us today. And I have one final question. Armin, what is your favorite part about being an economist? Wow. Um, You know, I like everything about being an economist. When I was in the eighth grade, I wrote an essay that I wanted to be an economist. And so I became an economist. Oh my goodness, in the eighth grade? Yes, I did. And I didn't understand what an economist does. I think I I, I, I knew something about it, but but oh. not uh, not a whole lot. <laughs> and here you are today. Yeah, yeah, probably. So What about you, Phil? What's your favorite part about being an economist? Uh, the, the the fame, the the fans who uh, follow me everywhere I go. <laughs> no how many followers do you have phil yeah no uh i'm the <laughs> famous I'm, dr I'm, philip johnson i'm still everybody. waiting for the still waiting for the first one but no what i i really enjoy about being an economist is is the insight that economics brings to everyday life um being able to look at things that's going on around politically things in everyday life uh, with whether it's family or you know going out shopping there's economics to me is is the center of everything in our world and it's just really a perspective that that I I value and I I enjoy and I'm glad that I have have that training and it's fantastic that I can do that every day when I come to work and get paid for that That is fantastic. Well, again, thank you guys for being here. You can find both Phil and Armin on our website, www.econ1.com. And if you have any questions for them or for me, please email us at insideexpert at econ1.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Inside Expert. Inside Expert.